Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 64 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance or compliance related topic. As this is the first podcast of Compliance Into the Weeds in 2018, we're going to take a look at eight compliance events to watch in 2018. They include commentary on the SEC guidance on cybersecurity, the new RevRec standard, the Supreme Court decision on whistleblower protection in digital reality, trust versus Summers, the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, changes in anti-harassment programs that have the fallout of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, maturity of vendor risk management, and a bustling TRC vendor world, and some thoughts on potential SEC Sarbanes-Oxley reform. It's a fascinating look at what will be some of the top stories in 2018. As always, we take a deep dive and go into the weeds on each of these topics. Compliance into the weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back with Matt Kelly for another episode of Compliance into the Weeds, the podcast where we take a deep dive into a compliance-related topic, literally going into the weeds. As this is our first podcast in 2018, it seems like a good time to uh, maybe look ahead to see where the weeds may bring us in uh, 2018. Not the uh, legal weed of California, but the compliance weeds that Matt and I talk about. And Matt has written a very interesting blog post entitled Eight Compliance Events to Watch in 2018. So Matt, uh, what is on your radar for 2018? Hey Tom, how are you? It's uh, good to be here again for 2018. Um, so yeah, I, I have a bunch of things actually, and I had more than eight, but I eventually did pare it down to eight items and some other day we can talk about what didn't make it onto the list. Um, very first couple of ideas I had, I'll group them together in the interests of time, but I think, um, in no particular order in my blog post, I had started with the SEC guidance on cybersecurity that is supposed to come out sometime this year. Um, And then that tied into another item I had further down on my list about vendor risk management and our efforts to have a more mature approach to vendor risk management. So I think this is probably going to wind up kind of bleeding into each other that um, as people might remember, uh, cybersecurity was a big deal last year. And (laughs) at some point in late 2017, after the Equifax breach of July, and after the SEC admitted its own cybersecurity breach, I want to say in August, uh, and there was a whole lot of egg on their faces, um, a top SEC official, the head of the corporate finance division, he said that new guidance is going to be coming soon, exactly when, we don't know, um, about how the SEC wants companies to think about cybersecurity risk. And it's going to be a lot about how to ensure you have proper escalation procedures so that when a breach happens, it reaches the right people at the right time, which is quick time. Um, How it reaches the right people quickly that you can put in some response in place, how to prevent abuses like insider trading ahead of disclosing the breach. Not a whole lot about disclosing what the breach actually should be or what is a disclosable event, which I don't know what that would be, and I don't think a lot of people understand that either. But if this guidance is going to be more about how do you stay aware of cybersecurity risk within your organization, uh, 
Well, that bleeds into my other point there. I think that in 2018, we're going to see a lot more talk about vendor risk management because we've moved from vendors helping us with specific transactions. So all the FCPA people who've been listening to us for years here, you know, like you get that. You get vendor risk as they have some sort of sketchy transaction they're doing on your behalf. Well, it's really moving now more to the services these vendors are providing more in an IT kind of a landscape that could lead to cybersecurity risk because you don't know what the privacy controls are for that data storage provider who is storing all of your sensitive customer data and you wind up with a breach that way. These two things are supportive of each other. And I think we'll see a lot more talk about how to get ahead of vendors in that kind of systematic way, because they're becoming integral parts of the corporate body. They're not just, you know, beckon them up to handle this transaction for this sketchy person in this sketchy market. It's going to be much more, they provide this function. We need to think about it. We see a lot about that. Um, on the accounting side, I think that we will see more discussion about the new revenue recognition standard, which Tom, you and I have talked about before. Uh, that is now in effect. It went into effect on December 15 for companies, your fiscal year that begins on or after December 15 of 2017. Most companies, your fiscal years begin and end on January 1st. So this is your first period after December 15. So it's now in effect. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of companies still struggling with the consequences of how you implement the revenue standard. You're not going to see revenue numbers go high and low and all over the place for most companies. You will see that for some, but for a lot of them disclosing, here's our improvements to internal control. Here's our changes to sales compensation practices. Um, here is the change to our balance sheet, which may affect our valuation. You'll see a lot of discussion like that throughout the year as more and more companies start filing under the new standard. I'll be very curious to see how that goes. Um, I think that by June, we will have a really big ruling from the Supreme Court about whistleblower protections. And uh, back in November, people might remember, the Supreme Court heard a case about whether Dodd-Frank's whistleblower protection rules apply to people who do not report misconduct to the SEC. They report it internally. Now, the law says if you report it to the SEC, these protections apply. But it isn't entirely clear if you don't report to the SEC, do you also get the protections? And so there was some uh, outfit out there who filed a lawsuit saying it, this means it doesn't help. It doesn't provide protection. Uh, that seemed to be what a lot of Supreme Court justices were thinking when they were in oral arguments. It is possible that the Supreme Court might actually rule that no, Dodd-Frank protections do not apply unless you first report to the SEC. I think this is a terrible lawsuit. This is a dumb idea that is going to gum up a lot of compliance programs because all this would do would be to drive more whistleblowers to report first to the SEC, make sure that they have their rear end covered from that. And then still, you have all the regular rigmarole you get from some sort of misconduct allegation and complaints about retaliation. And now the SEC has been called already about it. There's no upside to this. Um, so I'll be very curious to see that. We don't know exactly when that decision is going to come down, but usually the big decisions, and this is a, this would be a big one, 
they come down towards the end of June. So that can be our mid-year discussion there. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of discussion around anti-harassment training and programs. Clearly, the training is not working because a lot of men do take the training. A lot of men then certify that they are not harassing and then they behave like jerks anyways. So how could companies cultivate more of a speak up culture generally? I think that's still going to be on people's mind. I think that this anti-harassment movement, which is a good movement, uh, is not going to slow down any more than it uh, it only picked up steam throughout 2017. I think it's going to be rolling right along in 2018. Uh, we have questions about the FCPA's corporate enforcement policy that the Justice Department ruled out. I know that we've talked about that a lot. I think that will be a big deal to see how it works in practice. Um, I have a sinking suspicion not based on any inside intel. I don't really know, but I just get the sense that the software vendors in governance, risk, and compliance, we're going to see more action from them because the economy is good. It's a lot of investment flowing into this field. There's a lot of attention flowing into it. The corporations are paying attention. So therefore, I don't know if we'll see more rounds of venture funding. So these companies can now solicit you more often with new products. I don't know if we'll see mergers, but I think we're going to see a robust year for GRC vendors. Um, and then lastly, I think that we will see the SEC try something with Sox, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley compliance reform. Now, what is that going to be? I don't really know because in my observation, it doesn't seem like alleviating Sox compliance will solve the problem that supposedly exists that we don't have enough companies filing for IPOs in this country. That is what the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, that is what he wants to address. That's fine. You can address it. I don't actually think it's as severe of a problem as some people say. However, rolling back SOX compliance and investor protections is not going to move the needle on that. But clearly, he wants to do something there, probably around repealing um, or alleviating some Section 404B audits of internal control. Um, but we'll see. Clearly, Jake Clayton wants to do something with it. We don't know exactly what. We don't know when. But I am hard-pressed to believe he will let another year go by where he is in charge and he does not take a pass at that target. That's something on his agenda. So I think that's all the eight that I have. And if you want to geek out on them, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah, let me maybe re reorient these in a, in a different for, a format together because they some of these seem to me to, to more more naturally – um, grouped together, but let me just start out with uh, two of the last three, which were uh, the bustling GRC vendor world, but let me focus on the maturity of vendor risk management, and I was really intrigued by your word, Matt, maturity, because that for me is the key to both of those points. Um, mm -hmm. I, as compliance programs have matured, uh, obviously the Department of Justice's views have evolved and matured, corporate compliance programs have matured, and the business community has stepped up in its maturation of its own programs as well. Now we've wedded that maturation with a technological component, uh, whether you call that artificial intelligence or technological advancement or, you know, geeking out into the weeds uh, it really doesn't matter, but we see, um, or at least I see, quite a bit of innovation from the vendor risk management community uh, in in moving forward and really in leaps and bounds on vendor risk management to a broader GRC risk management uh, uh, protocol and 
with the corporate scandals that are continuing to bedevil uh, corporate America, the uh, just devastating reputational damage uh, to some of these companies, I see uh, this is at least one part of the solution. I, I think so. Um, what intrigues me about vendor risk management is while the, the basic principles of it and the practice of it originated as a regulatory compliance response. You know, you have FCPA risk about intermediaries. Therefore, you need to know who your intermediaries and third parties are. That's where it came from. This is an operational business risk now. If you don't have your vendor risk management program buttoned up, you could have a cybersecurity risk sneak into your organization. You don't know it. And then some thieves rob you blind. Um the, the thieves don't care whether they're regulated or not. And the money that's not in your bank account, it doesn't care whether it's regulated or not. This is a business concern that is going to get attention. Um, so it traces back to something that was, I don't know, maybe birthed by regulatory compliance uh, urges and imperatives. But like this is a big deal. This is an enormous deal. It's very expensive and difficult to figure this out, even more so after the mess has already happened. So it is not surprising that we'll pay more attention to it. And if the companies are paying more attention to it, the investors and the software vendors are going to be more than happy to pay more attention to it, too. So I, I think that we'll see a lot of new offerings, a lot of, I don't know, marketing campaigns are trying to phrase it that way. But this is going to be, I think, a, a robust year, put it that way. So now let me pair up the um, Supreme Court decision on whistleblower protection with your section on changes to anti-harassment programs. And I will preface that uh, pairing with my belief that the Weinstein case, the Me Too's, uh, follow-ons, and uh, the continued discussion about harassment in the workplace are really going to change, I hope, the entire focus from not simply raising your hand if something happens to you, but if you see something, you say something in the corporate world. And uh, if we can make that change, I think that would be a, 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 an excellent um, response to Weinstein. But on the Supreme Court case, uh, not to completely geek out on you, but that really turns on a uh, doctrine called the Chevron Doctrine, where Supreme mm -hmm. Court defers to regulatory agencies for interpretation of the re regulatory statute. So here the SEC interpreted Dodd-Frank in a certain way, and uh, whether that interpretation is correct or not is certainly a, a plausible question to pose. But from Gorsuch and uh, some of the other uh, justices questioning, it seems to me they may be poised to really do away with the entire Chevron uh, doctrine. So it could really be a very significant decision for many different types of um, regulatory protection, uh, regulatory law, and regulatory interpretation. Uh, as to the um, your point on really nothing good coming out of this, I found it most interesting that um, in two or three of the underlying whistleblower cases, corporate legal departments actually fought the ability of people to claim whistleblower protection uh, when they reported internally and not to the uh, SEC. And that really uh, points out to me the difference in the compliance function and the legal function. The legal function is there to protect the company. Uh, it's not really there to remediate. It's not really there to uh, prevent, detect, 
and remediate. And so uh, having the corporate legal department at odds with the corporate compliance department, I think, is going to portend a, uh, not only a split in those functions, but make them parallel and force the Department of Justice to uh, come down um, on one side or the other uh, going forward. Well, you know, I've thought about that. Um, I've thought about all of the points you raised there. On the Chevron doctrine, I would agree that I think the dream of the conservative activists who really were bankrolling and pushing this case so far, their dream is that this would be the case to be the vehicle to overturn the Chevron doctrine. I don't think that's actually going to happen. I don't think other than maybe Neil Gorsuch and perhaps uh, Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas, like, I don't think there's a whole lot of appetite among the Supreme Court to Let's not go that far on this issue. That's just my gut feeling. That would be a big deal. Um, but on whistleblower protections, I've just I've been thinking a lot about the idea that if we give a decision that furthers the cynical belief that the company is not interested in hearing from you, if the company is never going to be on your side, nothing good comes from that. First off, you're still going to have other sort of anti-retaliation protections under other laws that uh, could very well still come into play. And on a practical daily basis, you know, you're still going to wind up with uh, a lot of headache. You know, let's say that is something tied back to sexual harassment. That could be something somebody files with the EEOC under some sort of civil rights claim under Title VII or something like that. And we haven't mentioned Dodd-Frank and whistleblower protections there. It's, it's but you're still dealing with this hassle. Um, and frankly, I think that if you show the employees who are not dumb, they're going to see this, that there are two ways they can go. One way exposes them to more risk. One way protects them. They're going to go the way that protects them. All the other apparatus of our litigation-happy country are going to gravitate to that, too. So I have no doubt that somebody somewhere out there at some ambulance-chasing plaintiff firm would then start soliciting whistleblower claims. And they would say something like, do you see misconduct at your company? Don't call your company. They're not on your side, which is what this decision would create. Come work with me, and we'll take your case to the SEC first, and then we'll get you what you deserve. And, you know, I'm lawyer so-and-so. Yeah, We have already seen all of these slip-and-fall ambulance-chasing advertisements before. To have that spill over into financial misconduct cases, just I don't think anything good comes from that. Um, the best way to solve problems is for companies to be able to solve them, which means that you're going to respect the people who bring them up. And you're going to make sure that you convince them you are also on their side. It's a very good point you raised, Tom, that this could split the legal and compliance departments. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the legal department's going to be on the moral high ground here if that comes to pass. So now let me pair up the new Department of Justice FCPA corporate enforcement policy with the SEC guidance on cybersecurity. I was very intrigued by your comments that what you really see, or one of the bigger things coming out at least, would be the escalation of the issue so that the uh, the security purchasing public is aware of when a breach occurs. But I guess from my perspective, what I had focused on was the uh, state of New York's Department of Financial Services uh, is, is the only regulator who has put out a requirement for cybersecurity policies and procedures. And they really laid that out 
uh, came effective March 1. And I had seen that uh, that would be perhaps a direction that the SEC would go. And that was really the reason I paired it with the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, because the more I've studied that, I find it to be a couple of things. One is a continuation, really, of the, the Yates memo and the doctrine set out by Sally Yates, which is not anything new from the Department of Justice uh because it's along the lines of if individuals violate the law, we're going to prosecute them. Uh, but what I did find uh, really uh, uh, a compilation, at least in the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, was a re-emphasis on CCO authority and independence and the corporate compliance function. And uh, once again, I will tie into you and your initial thoughts way back when on cybersecurity, and you, you pitched it in terms of compliance, compliance professionals, compliance programs, policies, and procedures. So maybe it's due to my uh, initial uh, viewing of this issue through the lens of your presentation back in Compliance Week in 2014, but when I think of guidance on cybersecurity, I really tend to focus on the policies and procedures part uh, as opposed to something along the line of escalation. Well, I think, you know, the fundamental issue here is I suspect the SEC is struggling with what they want to do here just as much as everybody else. Um, the New York DFS, they're thinking of this more as a banking regulation. Uh, it only applies to banks and how they can make sure that the financial system as it operates in the state of New York is sound and smooth. Well, the SEC has a different purview. It's primarily around investor protection under the securities law with a side business um, or a second half of its uh, mission of keeping orderly capital markets. But again, that's not the same as a sound and secure financial system. You can't necessarily have one without the other, but like the SEC's primary goal here is how do we keep investors secure from unnecessary and reckless risks? and keep them informed of what's going on. I still struggle. Like I said, give me an example of a material, disclosable cybersecurity event, because I don't know what one is. I'm not sure that the SEC does either. You know, If you have 100 million customer records that are exposed, but only people's names, is that more or less material than 100,000 records that have everything exposed, including birth dates and social security and whatnot, um, which one is more material that an investor should know about? And you know, do we want to get down into that nitty gritty with uh, disclosure rules from the SEC, which by the way, this is a Republican administration, they don't necessarily want onerous rules. Um, so I think that they're struggling with that. Now your point about, isn't this really about policies and procedures? Ultimately, yes, cybersecurity is a lot about that, but that's more because it is an operational risk, period. Doesn't matter what the SEC says or New York DFS or anybody else. If you don't have your cybersecurity policies and procedures working well, the thieves are going to come in and rob you blind no matter what. The thieves don't care whether this is a regulated, disclosable risk or not. So from that perspective, I think more about, you know, can the company keep it together? Can the company make sure that it is going to notify the right people within the organization to take the right actions? Um, sometimes that will be a breach response, you know, a breach notification or filing an 8K or I don't know what. But a lot of it is just going to be, did we lose anything else? Did we lose money? Do we understand what happened? Did we understand how to prevent this again? 
those are all operational issues that will exist irrespective of any bright-eyed, uh, bright-minded politician or regulator coming along with good ideas. It's um, it's a very complex issue, but th- that's where I come down on it right now. Well, they're great issues, Matt. I think they're going to give us a lot of fodder for uh, chewing on uh, over the course of 2018. And as always, there'll be new issues pop up, but a uh, great post and a lot of fun to, to think and talk about. All right, Tom. Thank you very much. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only compliance podcast that takes a deep dive each week into a compliance-related topic. Also, if you have any questions, you can email Matt Kelly at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email myself, Tom Fox, at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.